Welcome to NGB Ideas, brought to you by LabOccupier.com. This podcast is about the journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community. I'm Jim Wilson, and on the show this week, we're speaking with Derek Newton, Assistant Vice President, Innovation, Partnerships, and Entrepreneurship at the University of Toronto. Listen in as we learn about Derek's journey and how, in his position, he often gets a glimpse into the future path of life sciences before we do. Derek, welcome to NGP Ideas. Jim, it's a pleasure to be here. It's an exciting podcast, and I've actually heard many of your guests in your podcast. I'm delighted to be here. I'm feeling a little intimidated by the individuals that you've brought on. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this interview because not only have I heard a lot about you, but I think what you and your team at U of T are doing is incredibly cool on so many levels. And I want to remind our listeners that the NGB Ideas podcast is about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community. And earlier this month, U of T was recognized by UBI Global as one of the top five business incubators in the world, which is going to frame our discussion. First, congratulations on that well-deserved recognition. This is part of why I'm so excited about our discussion. You're in the enviable position of seeing innovation and disruption in the making. Before we go there, and I'd like to talk about your personal journey. You were born in the 1970s in Scarborough, which for our listeners is an eastern suburb of Toronto. What was it like growing up there, sir? It was a great neighborhood to grow up in. I have two brothers, and it was just a wonderful, vibrant community. People from all over the world came and landed in Scarborough. It was a great suburb, certainly at the time. It was a fantastic place to grow up. Your mom was a nurse, and your father worked in the pharmaceutical industry. Where did your mother work? She went to University of Toronto. She went to nurses college here. While I was a, a young boy growing up, she did not work at that period. But when I was in high school, she went back. It was impressive to see her go back to night school and retrain and requalify to be a nurse. And then she joined the Victorian Order of Nurses, which did in-home care for people in the Eastern region. She would go to people's houses and support them, everything from needing an insulin to, to support with whatever their in-home care needs were. And it was wonderful at that time because one of her reasons to going back to work was I think her kids were a little more growing up. And so she wanted to get back into the workplace and, and get back to her roots. But she also wanted to help earn some money to help put three boys through college. And so seeing the great hard work that she did to get requalified and get back out there and, and the purpose she had with it on so many levels was wonderful. That is inspiring. What did your father do? What was his job? He was born and raised in New Zealand, and he had a degree in botany, and he had a wonderful story, as many did back then, getting on a boat with not a lot of money in his pocket with a friend, and you know, about three weeks later, landing in Vancouver. They hitchhiked around North America, in part looking for jobs and looking for opportunities. Somehow, in a roundabout way, that ended up with them in Toronto and just at a party through friends of friends, he met my mother and the rest is history, as they say. I understand you're the middle of three. Were there any disadvantages or advantages growing up in that position? Well, we were always very close. My older brother's about two and a half years older than me. My younger brother is about two and a half years younger than me. So we were a close-knit bunch. We had a very outdoor childhood. My, my father and my mother were scout leaders from beavers to scouts. My father, given his background in science, 
he was very interested in nature and in the world around us. He, he had a background in agriculture, so everything from how we would prune the pear trees in our backyard to making sure the right agricultural products were put on them to make sure we didn't have apples with bugs in them at the end of the season. As scout leaders, we actually got to tour most of this great province campsite by campsite. My father was just fascinated to go on a walk and show us at a riverbed, here's some fossils, here's how fossils are created, and, and now we can see them today. He'd be fascinated to show us some plants. Here's some horsetail plants, which are really a prehistoric plant that has sort of survived through the ages. He really always had that sense of wonder of the world and, and nature, and, and so we were very lucky to be exposed to all that. I think I'm seeing where your love of science is coming from. When you were young, you were quite into swimming, weren't you? That's right. We were very active. We were very fortunate. My grandparents also were from Toronto. And in the 50s, my grandfather had a love of the outdoors and bought a small property in, in the Kawarthas. And he built the cottage all by himself. So being up there, a lot of outdoors, a lot of swimming. Growing up in Scarborough, one of my first jobs was being a lifeguard and being a swimming instructor. And so I got to see a lot of Scarborough through the eyes of students and adults that we taught swimming. It was it was a great way to meet all sorts of wonderful folks my age and, and have an impact on people. Did you ever compete in swimming? I did a couple triathlons, and then all through university, I, I would take sort of a master's or, or triathlon swimming course, mostly just for fitness and to stay in shape. I don't think I was ever at the level of, of competition. So you went to high school in Scarborough and gravitated towards biology, chemistry, and physics. I can say with confidence those courses held little to no appeal for me in high school because I don't think I was smart enough. I've wished ever since that I had gone down that path. What pushed you in that direction other than in what you've said before? Was there a, a conscious effort on your parents to say, hey, come on and look at this? Was there any direction provided there or was it something self-driven? It was very self-driven. I think from a very early age, I was really drawn to the sciences, drawn to the, to the natural world. How do things work? That always just fascinated me. Once I got into high school and even before that, I, I found those subjects so interesting. I think when I was about 10 or 12, I had in my mind that I wanted to get a PhD in science, oddly enough, which is perhaps an odd answer. And if you ask me why, I don't know that I had a great reason why, but I just knew I loved the subject. I loved the inquiry. I guess that was maybe the highest achievement. All through high school, I, I loved the, the biologies, the chemistry, the, the physics. I was driven. It was hard work for me. I wouldn't say that all of that came naturally. Certainly putting in the effort and putting in the hours was something that wasn't so much of a chore for me because I loved it. You eventually decided to go to the University of Waterloo and did a degree in biochemistry. Why did you go to Waterloo? The University of Waterloo was a newer university. It was a very science-based university, very engineering-based university. And I gravitated towards that. When I went to the university, they have a very strong chemistry program and a great biochemistry program. I think I liked the distance of the University of Waterloo from Toronto, which is it's away, but it's not that far away. So coming home for weekends and, and holidays was not too arduous. It was a great fit, and I, I loved it. It is and was a fantastic university. You had a favorite professor at Waterloo who taught a course in drug discovery and drug design. Could you tell us a bit about that? It was a great course. Professor Gilles Lajoie, I remember him well, wonderful French-Canadian. The course I took was on proteins and the structure of proteins and how drugs or small molecules might 
interact with that and could block it. And this is how drugs work in a three-dimensional way as they dock into various enzymes or proteins in our bodies. And I found that absolutely fascinating to look at the structures of proteins and see how they 3D fit together and how signals and electrical signals might pass through different proteins, everything from how signaling and ion channels in, in our nerve cells work and different types of molecules that can disrupt that. How that all works was wonderful. And this was, of course, before the days of great 3D graphics and the internet. And I remember one of the things we did a lot was I don't know if you're old enough, you remember sort of stereograms where you would see these posters in the mall. And if you can kind of cross your eyes just right, a 3D image pops out. So we had these great images of journals and in your textbook that you would put on your stereo glasses and you would see this 3D image of a protein and a drug. And how's that going to fit? I just love that. It was fascinating to me. I remember squinting and looking into these things. And some of our listeners might be Googling those terms to figure out what we're talking about. What was more enjoyable for you at university? Was it biology or, or chemistry and, and why? Probably the organic chemistry, the physical chemistry. That was hard for me. But how those two came together and, and how we understand how chemistry and biology interact and how cells manage energy and how they transport lipids and signals and come together to form a cell and to form an organism. It was fascinating to me. So I think the merger of the two, biochemistry, at least the program I took, it wasn't just you're taking biology and you're taking chemistry, you're taking how those two interact. I enjoyed it so much I stayed at the University of Waterloo for a master's degree in protein engineering and protein structure. And that's where it became much more tangible for me to understand here's a human protein that we want to understand more. It was part of a family of proteins called the nitric oxide synthases. It creates nitric oxide in your body, which is an important signaling compound, both in your neurons and in other parts of your body. If you want to study the structure of a protein, you need to make enough of it that you can actually use it for some of the tools and analysis that you would have in the lab. I was fascinated with taking the human genetic sequence of this protein, and we would put and engineer that into bacteria or yeast cells and see if we could get that bacteria to make very large quantities of it, large in terms of a, a laboratory scale, and then purify that and then see if you could get enough of that protein that you could begin to do some studies on it in terms of how fast it's able to work, what things that might block it or inhibit it. Were you on campus or off campus? I started the first year in a residence. Met a great group of guys. We stayed together through various types of housing. I was very close to the university during my master's as well. It was great to be in town and just be immersed. Sounds like university was something that you enjoyed. You didn't have to endure it. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that's fantastic about a university is in first year, particularly when in residences, your friends and, and your students, they're all around you from in different subject areas. And it's really exciting. My one of my best friends was in earth science. I don't think I even knew what the earth sciences was before that. Folks in chemistry, architecture, you name it. In addition to your own subject area, meeting all your classmates and, and your residence mates around you who are taking different classes. So the conversations you tend to have and just what you get exposed to, even though you're not in those courses, is, is just fascinating. I, too, did a master's degree in history. In my experience, I ended up doing some teaching at tutorials. Was teaching also part of your master's degree? Exactly right. I was a TA in some organic chemistry labs. I was TA in, in some genetics. I really did enjoy that, working directly with some of the students and working on the labs and 
helping them through some of the labs. I didn't love marking all of the papers and assignments. It really was a fun experience because it's very hands-on. It's very practical. At that point, were you thinking that perhaps academia was the path that you were pursuing? I don't know that I knew the answer to whether academia was the path, but certainly at that point, I did know that I did want to continue with my academic studies and, and research. So that's when I began to think about doing a PhD and sort of what topic would that be in and, and where would one go to do that. I was already fascinated by human proteins that I was working on uh, during my master's, nitric oxide synthase. And I wanted to understand and get more involved in, in the more medical research, the more human biology of that. There was an amazing researcher here at the University of Toronto, in Toronto, who was also a nephrologist at St. Mike's Hospital that accepted into uh, the medical biophysics program here and continued my studies. Now my studies moved a little bit away from how does this protein work to what do we understand about the genes in the human body and how they get upregulated, how they get downregulated, and how does that affect human health and how does that affect human disease? It's a bit of an older product, but people would used to have a, a nitroglycerin pill that they would put underneath their tongue and that would cause vasorelaxation and pharyngina. I studied the gene that makes that naturally in your body. And why does some people have not enough of that? The discoverers of nitric oxide had recently won a Nobel Prize in medicine. At that time, it was one of the most complicated genes in the human genome, both in terms of its size and genes in the human genome are segmented between coding regions and non-coding regions. There's an enormous amount of diversity on how different sections of that gene are put together and how that can have different functional differences. And I loved it, and it was fascinating research, and it was much more medically and human disease-oriented when I came to work at the medical school here at the University of Toronto. While you were doing your PhD, you got married and had your first child. That's right. You had your hands full. I did. I, I did, absolutely. I was living downtown and doing my master's. My wife, she's a public school teacher. She was also early in her career, and then we had our first son while I was doing my PhD sharpens the mind having a family and, and a young child to what are you going to do when you graduate? What's that going to look were like? Were you asking that or was your wife? Well, I think we were both asking that. I think that's maybe true. <laughs> so you graduated with a PhD in molecular biology in 1998. At that point, you'd also been doing a bit of consulting. That's right. Near the end of my PhD, you think about what are you going to do? It. I had decided that being an academic and going on to do a postdoc and working to run my own lab and be a professor was not the career path. Then you have that moment of what am I going to do? And I have a very specific skill set of molecular biology techniques. And there's not a lot of laboratories in the, in the world that know more about this gene. But now I have to go get a job. And, and maybe all of those skills are interesting in the academic world. But how are you going to apply them? I was very lucky at the time, a good friend of mine, actually a running partner of mine, during this time was training for a marathon. He had a role in youth achievement, and he really helped me think about Derek, the skills that you've acquired from working in a team, analytical thinking. I'd been to a lot of conferences and presented my work and had some success with that. So your communication skills. So he was helping me understand what are the soft skills that you've acquired during this advanced training, and how can you apply those in other areas? And I applied to a, a boutique management consulting firm for my first job. I, once I left, I graduated from the University of Toronto, and, and they hired generally 
two types of individuals, those with MBAs and those with PhDs. And I was obviously on the PhD side of that. And it was an amazing place to be interacting with these folks who had MBAs and just understanding business, understanding a whole new language, understanding how to write an email that would be appropriate in a business setting, understanding how to host a structured meeting. We did a lot of great work with pharmaceutical companies and research institutions across the country. That was just an amazing learning opportunity. That really put my career on an interesting trajectory. I didn't know where it was going to go, but it allowed me to continue to keep one foot in the science and the research, but begin to expand my skills and the type of things I was able to do. It was more serendipitous than probably you realized at the time, and you eventually landed at Ontario Genomics. I took a job at the Ontario Genomics Institute, and that's an organization that it's a provincial organization with support with the federal government that funds extremely large genomics, proteomics research projects. It was a great fit for me, given my background, but also a lot of work went into project management and understanding budgeting and working with groups that were wanting to apply for these types of awards. I had a lot of non-science that came into that, which was often when some of those projects were not moving forward as fast or being as successful as they want. It had sometimes to do with just the governance structure and, and the management structure and the milestone. Why are these projects not perhaps advancing or projects that were doing wonderful work? They would be communication strategy and commercialization. There was a whole suite of things around how large science is supported and fostered that I began to learn about as well. It was a whole new set of skills. Ontario Genomics remains an incredible organization. It's now run by Bettina Hamelin and she and her team play a central role, as you know, in the Ontario life sciences community. From OG, you were recruited by my undergraduate alma mater, Western, down in London. And you were at Western for six and a half years. What took you there and what was that experience like? I met an amazing individual. Dan Sinai was the director of development office at Western at that time. At that time, Western had observed that, that there were some larger team grants, largely in the medical space, grants like Ontario Genomics uh, would support. They wanted to grow the attraction of those types of grants and opportunities to the institution to grow and support researchers at the institution. I made the leap to Western and took on an amazing role where at that time through CIHR, other funding programs, they had a lot of team grants and, and some of these grants were not fully subscribed. They weren't always on people's radar. I got to go around campus and look at the calls for proposals and introduce sometimes researchers who at the same institution hadn't maybe met each other, hadn't been introduced to each other. And I would invite teams to put together a, a grant for this opportunity and someone from the hospital, someone from the biology department, and we got some of those grants. It was a great role to support researchers, help attract exciting resources to the institution, and, and put together teams. In June 2012, you started a new career at the University of Toronto in the Innovations of Partnerships office, and I appreciate you explaining why you made that move and what that office does. At Western, while I had that amazing job, I also then took on oversight and support of the, their CFI, which is a large infrastructure granting program, the Canada Research Chairs Program. So I, I had certainly a lot of experience in industry funding programs. And then an opportunity came along at the University of Toronto in the Innovations of Partnerships Office, which is an amazing organization. 
two important pieces that they support here at UFT is one is industry partnership that support research. Everything from thinking about IP terms with, with companies to how do we further grow that. And there's a lot of programs in Ontario and Canada, which are here to support increased collaboration between industry and academia. And so making sure that, that we succeed in, in those opportunities as well. They're also to use tech transfer office. That is the office that manages the intellectual property portfolio of the institution. And those two offices had been recently brought together in terms of how do we think about how industry research partnerships, intellectual property creation and management, and, and how do those offices maybe have some natural interaction for them. So they posted for an executive director. It was the type of role for me that, first of all, being a U of T alum and just University of Toronto was an exciting opportunity for my wife and I. It was an opportunity perhaps to come home to Toronto. And of course, most of our family was here and it was a daunting role. And it was one of those jobs that you apply. You're certainly not sure you're going to get it. You think that this is going to be a big stretch. And then here we are. I was delighted to be offered the role and very exciting times. And it's an amazing office here at the university. There's a, a theme that I've picked up in finding out about you as a person. And it's about challenging yourself. You've done that throughout your career. And it, did you get that from your grandparents or your parents? Or is it something that is exclusive to you and your family? Maybe that's the middle child syndrome. It's certainly true that my grandparents, uh, my grandmother, she grew up in Prince Edward County, east part of Ontario. In the 30s, she actually went to Queen's University for mathematics. That is an amazing accomplishment in that era for a woman to go to university. That's actually where she met my grandfather, who was an engineer. When I knew my grandparents, they were both retirees, but he had been the plant manager at the Lever Brothers plant, which is at the foot of the Don Valley. I would have these great stories of that plant and when he was the manager there. Funny story, he could still have access to the commissary. To this day, anytime I buy sunlight soap, which was manufactured at the facility there, I cannot think of my grandparents because they would have cartons of it down in their basement. That's always a fun memory for me. And when he was building the cotters, I understand the story was Lieber Brothers had two plants in Toronto, plant number one, plant number two. And then the cottage that he built was affectionately known as plant number three. There's a window frame or some electrical or something that somehow made its way from Lieber Brothers to a cottage. The curtains were made from Lieber Brothers. This was how they were able to build a cottage. Necessity is the mother of invention. That's right. <laughs> I'd like to dive into U of T. I did not go there and many friends who did. And it is the number one university in Canada by just about every measure. And it's consistently in the top five universities globally for research output. I've got a few stats here that I'd appreciate you commenting on. It's an institution involved in almost $1.5 billion in research annually. There's something like 9,200 research funds, 330 research chairs, and hundreds of startups knocking on your door looking for your advice. It blows my mind what I see in my position, and I would think that you see the future of innovation and disruption on a daily basis. The University of Toronto is all of those things that you've said. It's a leader in the Canadian context. It's a global institution. Three campuses, 90,000 students. I don't think there's any other university on the planet that has the size of 
student body and academic programs across so many disciplines and the excellence of education that is so accessible given the size of the student population. Coupled with the research intensivity of the university, which you mentioned, the University of Toronto partnered with nine hospitals, $1.5 billion of research conducted every year. Not a single university on the planet publishes more papers than the University of Toronto, except for Harvard. Papers, as you mentioned, are some of the most highly cited in the world. From a research perspective, the University of Toronto and the hospitals, it is an enormous and fast-moving and exciting institution. I've heard it described as really probably one of the most important public institutions in Canada, if not the world. Coming back to the University of Toronto, a place where I had done my studies, be able to contribute and give back to this institution and important role in, in the nation has been just absolutely a wonderful part of my career. And I'm delighted to work here every single day. Isn't that great to hear? We'd like to take a moment to remind our listeners the NGB Ideas podcast is part of the next Great Big Ideas Summit that's taking place on the first Monday in October in Hamilton. This is an event for those who want to meet today's leaders and today's up-and-coming startups in Canada's life sciences community. For more details, check out nextgreatbigideas.com. When you did come back and you became part of the management team, was there anything that surprised you? The level of decentralization here surprised me, certainly compared to other places I had been. University of Toronto, three campuses, a number of faculties, divisions, as we would name them. The amount of decentralization of how this institution operates with different faculties, how they're able to set their own agendas, but within the University of Toronto. So I think that was very striking to me. I think the University of Toronto, its size is also something that's a little bit difficult to wrap your head around. Our office here, supporting industry contracts and grants, the amount of volume that comes in to support this enormous community is something that we're always thinking about, thinking about how we can try and keep up and how we can support. The amount of activity happening at the organization is, is exciting and sometimes daunting, and it's never boring. What is the best part of your job? And I think that there's so many layers to that. I love working at a university. First of all, a university is an amazingly optimistic place to work. People from around the world come here and they bring their talent, they bring their ideas, and they apply it to their studies. They apply it to their research. Universities are, are institutions of possibilities. So when I think of some of the research that's happening here, some of the impacts we're having, how we've grown and how we support research and its commercialization, it's absolutely amazing how far and fast this institution has come. What gets you up in the morning? One of my mentors when I was at Western, wonderful woman named Gideon Masudi, she said, Derek, always need to think about this from the researcher perspective. So when I think about the researchers here, the innovators, how they apply for grants, how we can support them in protecting their ideas, how we can help them move their ideas into the marketplace, it is the relentless innovators at the institution that we're here to support. And that's an absolutely amazing place to be and, and to be able to be a part of. I would guess that your job has many challenges and different challenges on a daily basis. What is the most challenging part of your job? I spend a lot of time with lawyers, I'll tell you that, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, boy, we could go down a rabbit hole on that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> one of the challenges that we see in this country, amazing support for research. And I think as a nation, there's room to grow. How do we support moving that research into the market? And where is the marketplace for that? Helping our researchers and innovators find proof of concept, prototyping, the type of funds and resources to take that idea, that discovery, and test it towards the marketplace. It's a challenge everywhere. That's a challenge in the Canadian context. Helping our ideas become a new product, become a new service within that funding limitation, that would be one of the challenges that I see. I'd like to go back to the personal side of your life and ask what has been the most difficult episode that you've been faced with and how did you overcome it? What did you learn from it? Early in my career, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. Obviously, that was a very difficult time. She had lung cancer, all that that entails. And at that time, I was starting a new job, a very demanding job. My older son at the time, Ethan, was about two. And then my wife and I were expecting our second child from a new job to, to obviously this very difficult situation with my mother and seeing her become ill and, and supporting her and visiting her in the hospital. I think that was a very challenging time filled with a lot of joy as, as you start a new family, but also very difficult times. And my mother, she passed away in 2004 from cancer. That was a difficult time. I think often about the amazing health care that, that she received here in Canada lucky to be in Canada and be in a country that, that has universal health care and, and how that does support all of us when we need it. And then thinking about my own PhD was in a department that was based in Ontario Cancer Institute. Thinking about how research improves and saves lives is also something that was very impactful for me. Being a father and a son caring for a parent and caring for your family and holding down a full-time job. I can't imagine the stress. Was there any time where you thought, I just, I can't do this? I don't know if you thought I can't do this. And, and maybe it's because it wasn't an option to not do this. All of the things that you just mentioned are important things that needed to be done. And so what's the British phrase? You, you keep calm and carry on. I, that was part of it. But really it was a challenging time but also a time when you challenge yourself and you learn a lot about yourself. I appreciate you sharing that. Let's go back to your professional journey. When did you know that you were on the right path? It's interesting. I was very blessed at one point to be able to work with an executive coach and thinking about what's your career path. And it was very interesting when we sort of mapped backwards. You mentioned it was serendipity that you got this job as a consultant with a biotech firm and then going to OG and then going to Western and then here. On one hand, I look back and think that those were all serendipitous opportunities that came up and I was fortunate enough to seize them. But then sometimes I look back and go, maybe it wasn't all serendipity. Maybe I was attracted to roles that were appealed to me and were based on my skills and my experiences to keep your eyes open for the opportunities as they come to you. A career path is something we don't see coming at us, perhaps so much as we see it in the rearview mirror with a few years of hindsight and go, oh, here I am. That's right. Do you recall the best advice you've ever been given? My PhD supervisor gave me this advice. I had left the lab and I had actually started working 
in my job. And that was a very busy job. I threw myself fully into that at the time. But I hadn't defended my thesis yet. So I did have to come back, external reviewers, and, and defend the work that you've done over the last four years. If you don't pass that, I'm not quite sure what happens to you. I guess you just don't get your PhD. I could remember starting with my boss and being stressed, putting the package together, being ready for it. I think he could tell that I was stressed. And he looked at me and he said, Derek, these things are a slam dunk so long as you don't treat them like they're a slam dunk. And that advice has carried with me, and sometimes I share it with others, which is to say, you have this, you, you can do this, but you need to put in the effort. You need to not treat it like it's going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But when you prepare, when you're ready, you put in the effort, then good things are going to come of that. Is that the advice you would give perhaps to any startups that might be listening to this conversation? Most of the startups I work with, I don't know that they need that advice. The individuals that I see, the entrepreneurs that have that spirit, I think they're already there. Though I think for startups, it's understanding how they're going to enter the marketplace, how they're going to get that first sale. And when you sort of make that first sale of a product or service, that's when you've gone from perhaps an interesting idea to something that has a place in the market. Many of our entrepreneurs are technical, they're researchers, so they want to continue to work on the research, the technical aspects, and that's obviously very important, but making sure they keep an eye on getting that to the market. And that's so many of the programs we have here at U of T are there to help our researchers, help our innovators connect with the business community and understand how to turn that idea into impact. I'd appreciate it if you explain to our listeners and to me about the startup incubators across the campuses at U of T. This is an exciting new development here at the University of Toronto. I would say that there's an enormous number of activity and students looking for entrepreneurship support at the university. Students come here from around the world and, and their passion and their energy and their ideas. They're seeking more opportunities to learn about entrepreneurship, how to start a company, how to manage a company, how to grow it in our classrooms. And I think there's now at last count over 300 curricular courses here at the university that address some part of creating, owning, managing, growing a business. However, these students, they also want opportunities outside of the classroom to learn how to be an entrepreneur, to try it, to, to live it. How do we find opportunities for someone from our engineering school to meet someone from our computer science, to meet someone from our education faculty, to meet someone from the business school and create teams? So right now at the University of Toronto, we've got 10 accelerator programs that operate across our three campuses. This is one of the most comprehensive suite of offerings and programs here to support our young innovators and entrepreneurs at any university. Regardless of whether you're at the Mississauga campus, the St. George campus, or the Scarborough campus, there's a program physically there that students can take part in. And many of these programs are in different subject areas. So whether you're from the engineering school, the medical faculty, there's a specific program for you. Many of these programs at a very early stage, so it's pre-company, students have amazing ideas and they just want to meet other students and figure out, is this a great idea? Or who do I meet who can help make that idea a better idea? A lot of pre-company work. 
I know the other end of that spectrum would be our creative destruction lab, which is there to support companies, which are typically already companies, and they've already got some business momentum, but they're looking to rapidly accelerate into the marketplace through investors and, and mentors. Regardless of what subject, regardless of what location, regardless of what stage, there's a program at U of T that is there for our students. We're delighted that this year, the most recent addition to our uh, growing accelerator programs is our Black Founders Network, a program that's specifically targeted to Black identifying entrepreneurs and, and really to address some of the, the key supports and challenges that that community has historically seen here in Canada and in the business community. So it's an exciting time. We've seen an enormous amount of growth. One of the programs that we're very excited about is our UTEST program. And this is a program that is linked to the intellectual property portfolio of the institution. This is a program where amazing ideas come to the University of Toronto. We've actually expanded the amount of patenting protection and how we protect made in Canada ideas. We're actually now in a tempo of submitting almost two U.S. patent applications per week. through the Innovations and Partnerships Office. In addition to that, we're now in a temple of creating almost two research-based companies a month on average throughout the course of a year. These companies are based on the research excellence. You talked at the top of this podcast about U of T being a top five research institution on the planet. How do we take those ideas, protect them? How do we work with the students, equip them? help them understand the business model, help them get some proof of concept funding to help prototype an idea. We have amazing support from the Connaught Foundation here at the University of Toronto that will provide some of that proof of concept dollars. And we also run a small seed investment program for these companies. The University of Toronto will be a first investor to help accelerate these companies. They're accessing amazing talent, students, researchers, intellectual property. We'll help these companies get established by helping defray some of their legal incorporation costs, their shareholders agreements. And then we, we put them through a educational program on how to get their company launched and, and going. We have space here at the University of Toronto where they can incubate and, and not have to worry about space concerns. I know that's a hot topic for you in the city of Toronto. And then we aggressively network them through our investor network. This program that we started 10 years ago, over 120 companies have been created, taken together, They've raised over $700 million of venture capital. Collectively, they're valued at over $2.5 billion, and they're continuing to grow and expand. And 119 of that 120 companies are still located, headquartered here in the greater Toronto area. And we're just so proud of these companies. Thinking about how we marry the research excellence, the talent that comes here, acceleration programs, how we equip innovators and entrepreneurs to take their ideas and realize them into the marketplace, how they can create their own great job as they graduate from the University of Toronto and maybe create some jobs for some of their classmates on the way too. Every time I now walk along college at the university, I'm going into Mars, I look across the street to the future building on the campus, the Schwartz-Reisman Innovation Center Phase 1 is nearing completion. Your office is in the former Banting and Best complex right beside it, and it is slated for demolition in the not-too-distant future for Phase 2. Could you tell us a little bit about the SRI complex? Well, let me start by saying the building I'm in 
the Banting Building, named after one of the co-discoverers, Banting and Best, of insulin. 101 years ago, insulin was discovered here at the University of Toronto, along with their hospital partners. And it's an amazing story of the gift that keeps on giving to diabetic patients around the world from the University of Toronto. So what better location to support, foster the next generation of Canadian innovators? The Schwartz-Riesman Innovation Campus, first phase is going up. That's going to be about 250,000 square feet of new space for startups, for entrepreneurs, for partners in that innovation ecosystem of the University of Toronto. It's going to be a very AI-focused building with the Vector Institute as, as one of the the amazing tenants in the building. My office will be there. The UTES program that I was just chatting about will be in there. And then there's going to be all sorts of other partners, mission-aligned partners in the innovation space. One of the things we're lacking here at the University of Toronto, and this is a common problem that I think you can relate to as you think about real estate in the city, is we have common innovation areas for entrepreneurs that are hot desking, shared environments, these work okay for companies when they're two, three, four people. But when that company starts to get into the five, six, eight plus people, the current facilities we have just aren't enough for them. Now we're going to have a building that has space for these companies to stay and grow connected to the University of Toronto. There's going to be spaces in the building where they can now move into spaces as they go from a five-person organization to a 15 to a 20 to a 50 person type of company. One of the things and why we think this is so important is these companies are based on amazing research at the University of Toronto, amazing talent that they're getting from the University of Toronto, all the things that this amazing city that we're so blessed to be in, it's welcoming to people from around the world. It's a destination that people want to come and they're willing to come and stay and, and raise families here and start a career here. And so I really think that the city of Toronto and Canada is a bright spot around the world. And how these companies can stay and stay connected to U of T and grow here is something that the university is deeply committed to. And this complex is a transformational investment of the university in partnerships and in innovation and in entrepreneurship and the Canadian science economy. A few years ago, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives in the United States, Tip O'Neill, said something along the lines of, if you want to create a city, found a university, and wait 200 years. The University of Toronto is coming up on its 200th anniversary? That's correct. In, is it 2027? Yeah. I grew up hearing about the University of Toronto, and, and as I got into my real estate career, I was oblivious to how important U of T is, not only to Toronto and Ontario, but to Canada. And it just talking about it sends a little shiver in a good way up my spine because I've become aware of the incredibly important role the university plays, certainly in the life sciences community, but in so many areas. And I think it very modestly does what it does without searching out for accolades or anything else. It just, it's an incredible organization. And the future in the life sciences sector and the role that the university is playing is something that I look forward to seeing come to fruition. What does the future hold for U of T in your mind over the next few years? 
Well, this new facility, which will also have a an auditorium and the ability to bring in more speakers and have events and continue to excite and accelerate companies. The second phase of that complex is going to be a 500,000 square foot facility that will be wet lab enabled. And I think you and I actually connected over some of the conversations around the real lack of wet lab commercial space in not just the GTA, but Ontario at large. The amazing companies, particularly in the life sciences coming from the University of Toronto and the hospitals, where do they go when they begin to grow and expand? Having this facility here connected to the University of Toronto, right across the street from Mars, connected to our hospital partners, this is going to be an amazing symbol of Canadian innovation. It's an amazing investment from the University of Toronto. It's going to be, I think, a real catalytic force when it comes to the life sciences industry in this country. I hope I'm around to see the potential realized because it is so impressive. Final question, and perhaps for someone in your position, one that you may have difficulty answering because there's so many great ideas that come across your desk. What's the next great big idea on your horizon? The next great big idea. I don't think I can take credit for this big idea, but surely it is a great big idea. And that is, we've just been talking about the Schwartz Reason Innovation Campus. We've been talking about the role of UT in attracting talent from around the world, or the amazing research that's happening here how we're turning that into commercial opportunities, how we're turning that into new companies. I think now we need to think about how those companies are going to grow and stay here in Canada. I think through the pandemic, we saw some of the vulnerabilities here in Canada by not having a lot of homegrown life sciences companies. And so we were in line along with other countries when it came to vaccine availability and, and other important products. I think Towards Reisman Innovation Complex, how the university continues and our hospital partners continues to be a leader in research, how we protect Made in Canada ideas, how we incentivize innovators, entrepreneurs, and how we find ways to keep these new companies connected in Canada to spaces that are going to be available. I think that idea of how the next generation of innovators can grow a new biosciences economy, a homegrown economy here in Canada. It is a very exciting proposition. We're seeing this happening in AI. We're seeing this happening in quantum. We're going to start seeing this happening increasingly in life sciences. So I think this is a very exciting time for Canadian science, Canadian innovators, and keeping these great ideas and companies here in Canada. You and your team are at the forefront of all of that work. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Derek, and all the best. Thank you so much for the conversation and look forward to continuing the conversation as we build new spaces for Canadian companies. That was Derek Newton, Assistant Vice President, Innovation Partnerships and Entrepreneurship at the University of Toronto. You can learn more about U of T by visiting utoronto.ca. The NGB Ideas podcast is part of Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit, taking place the first Monday in October in Hamilton, Ontario. For details, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. The NGB Ideas podcast is brought to you by laboccupier.com, and this week's episode was researched and produced by Tisha Prasad. 
Follow us at NGB Ideas on social, and you can follow me at Lab Occupier. You can reach me via email at jwilson at leonard, L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. Thanks for joining us this week. If you like our podcast, please subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We also encourage you to share your thoughts about us on social media with the hashtag NGB Ideas. We appreciate your feedback and invite you to suggest future guests at your convenience. Thanks for listening.